0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't
1: have to be another face in the crowd. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 27th, 2014, and this is episode 1414 14 of the Survival Podcast. A lot of 14s in there. We're going to talk about something we've actually never discussed before on TSP at any length anyway. Windmills for water self-sufficiency. Douglas Crawl is going to be on with me in a bit. His family knows a little bit about windmills. They've been uh putting windmills and wells in since, well, I think 1898. I've got a photo on the blog today of his, uh I believe his great-grandfather drilling a well with a horse in 1902, so they know a little bit about this subject. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, today is ready-made resources, all the resources you need for your prepping. Ready made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. Lightning fast service, great pricing, and just great people to do business with, with everything you could need for your prepping needs. I mean everything. Gardens, guns, tactical, practical, everything in between. Long-term food storage, you name it, they've got it. Check them out today, the company that says what it does and does what it says. ReadyMadeResources.com Next up today, Backyard Food Production. Now, look, I'll tell you what, if you want to make sure that you can feed yourself in a crisis, you need to be producing some of your own food. Marjorie Wildcraft will teach you how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Check them out today, backyardfoodproduction.com. <coughs> Excuse me. Next up, let's talk about the year that was the episode real quick here. I got an interesting one for you today. Uh, How Alex made this jump, I don't know, but it's a great jump And how it applies today. Podcasting, the Heresy Act, and the ninth worst Britain in history. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Ardnell, has died at a most unfortunate time. He has been blocking a move by Parliament to expand his law. A religious law he passed years ago meant to frighten the clergy away from the Lollards and John Wycliffe's radical ideas. Heresy is a religious crime that carries the death penalty, but the penalty is not often carried out. Nevertheless, heresy has moved to the top of the agenda in Parliament. It will become a crime judged by the courts of justice with little mercy. That is a formula for death. Archbishop Thomas has died, and now accusations of heresy will be used by some future government when a convenient death is needed. In a poll conducted by the BBC History Magazine, Archbishop Thomas will be voted the ninth worst Briton in history. My God, Archbishop Thomas, with the best of intentions, we often do our worst. Or as my grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. My take by Alex Shrug, this law, the law is a blunt instrument. The same law can be used to maintain reasonable behavior or it can be used to do violence to one's enemies. When the government is benign, there's little danger of abuse, but the government is not always benign. I'd say government's never benign. Anyway, they pass so many laws, we're bound to be guilty of something. All that is required is to select a violation to put us away. The patent laws do not require intent to violate a patent. Podcasting could be such a violation. To date, August 2014, many of the lawsuits against podcasters have been dropped but the issue has not been resolved. Yeah, that's something I really haven't talked about. There's this patent troll in Texas that says they own podcasting. And they were suing, like, the big dog of podcasting, Adam Carolla. And uh, they offered him to settle for $3 million. And he basically told them to cram it up their ass. And I think they offered him to settle for, like, 400000 and he said, cram it up your ass. And by the way, if, even if you asked for $100,000 to settle this, even though he had taken in like 400000 in his legal defu- defense fund, he was like, 100000 for what? Eventually they did settle. The terms have not been made uh, public. And this troll is still thinking about going after people like CBS and NBC who run podcasts of their content. Um, could they ever come after yours truly? Possibly. I, I hope not. I hope to avoid this. Um, It's a fight I haven't jumped into because the people that are currently fighting it are so much larger than me. Um, They have a much broader reach than me. I reach 100000 These people reach millions. Uh, Adam Carolla has the most popular podcast in existence. There's no one even close. Um, And he was able to raise about $400,000 at fundanything.com to fight these idiots. And uh, hopefully he will... uh, Whatever he did to settle hopefully doesn't set any kind of precedent that makes others, I don't know, a target. Like now we have the formula to get these guys type of a settlement, but um, I doubt it because he was pretty adamant about cramming up your ass, you don't have any claim to this. It really is a ridiculous patent that they're claiming ownership of. It's a very broad written thing that basically doesn't actually define how to distribute the content, but that the fact that the content is distributed... At all. So the broad way in which we push things out with a podcast, which is using RSS, uh, really simple syndication, uh, which was actually pioneered by Apple, who, who did not patent it and who left it open source. So we'll see where that goes. But that is an example. I would just say that when you pass a law that's broad sweeping and not specific, then it will be abused. And the law that we're talking about here, heresy. Well, you committed heresy, you get killed. Well, who decides that it's heresy? And now you know one of the main reasons that when you look at the United States Constitution is a clearly defined separation of church and state. It is it is not really to protect the church from the state, it's to protect the people from the church. Because the church of the time was still very much in the mindset of controlling the lives of people through the use of force, even at the time of our founding. Um the modern church as we know it today, and, and especially in the Christianity world, uh, doesn't look a lot like it did even a couple hundred years ago, as far as its, its willingness to use force on citizens, to force compliance. Um, basically, if you have a law against heresy, you've outlawed all religions except that of your own, under penalty of death. Yay, State. See why I'm not a fan of statism? Anyway, with that, uh got some other stuff I wanted to uh, cover with you guys today. Uh, next up, Permiethos.com. We're going to be doing an event at Permaethos in West Virginia. would love for a bunch of you guys to come. I think we're going to limit it to 40 to 50 students. I don't know that we have a final number on it yet. We don't have a final agenda on everything we'll be doing, but... Let me just look at my calendar so I don't screw this up, because I almost already did today. It's going to be the weekend of October 11th. It's probably going to run Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Everybody leaves Sunday like I do at my location. So that's the 9th, 10th, and 11th of of October. Um, I will be there. Nick Ferguson will be there. Josiah will be there. Kevin and Charlie will be there. Jesse Tegmeyer will be there. The whole Perm Ethos staff. Some of the things we're going to do... One, we'll have a final design by then for the 18 acres that we're going to be putting into full-scale production next year with with basically a food forestry alley cropping model. We'll do a complete walkthrough on that, explaining where dams are being put in, swales, terraces, etc., and explain all that. We'll show all the work that's been done. Uh, We may do some work on some of the garden beds that we're putting in for our our larger-scale production, going to feed the people on the farm uh, next fall. We are looking at possibly doing a chicken butchering workshop. I think we have 175 birds on pasture right now. We have a commercial scalder and plucker there, so it would be an automated, uh, at least the part of it that's the most tedious is the plucking, uh, and, and actually doing a class on how to slaughter chickens. I don't know if we'll slaughter the whole lot of them. They'll be right at eight weeks. I mean, it just worked out perfectly that, that we could do that. That obviously might lead us to cook some of those guys up for you guys for, uh, for dinner one of those nights. Um, we are also thinking about making some stuff available to students there along the lines of plant propagation, since Nick Ferguson is the one doing the plant propagation course. We're thinking about building a, uh, a, a what's called an intermittent misting system uh, for Permaethos. Nick's building one at his property as part of the first course, the first phase of his course. I'm building one here. By the time we get there, we'll have both built one. So this is not a very big system. It's like a four-by-eight-foot bed generally that you use to do this, but you can propagate hundreds and hundreds of cuttings in one of those. Um, And then there's a lot of other cool stuff there, but we're talking about a pretty jam-packed weekend with a lot of information, a lot of teaching, and we think this is going to become an annual thing that's going to get very, very big, but this will be the first one. There's also something that I can't tell you that's going to happen there that's going to be really, really cool. It's not going to be an educational thing. It's going to be an entertaining thing. And it's going to be something that I think that the people that get to come to this, when it happens, you're going to be blown away that we were able to bring you something like this. Uh, But I can't release publicly what it is. Again, 40 to 50 students. People that were founding members of the PDC in Class 001, you guys are going to get first chance to sign up for this. We should have it up by next week where people can put a deposit down and reserve their space. We do have to limit it. It's the first big event we've done at PE, and we're learning as we go up there how to run an event that big. I'm set up to do it here on my property. On another note, in November, Dorothy and I have talked about it. We were going to do this originally in September. Now we're thinking November... It's probably going to be November six, seven, eight or November 13, 14, 15. one of those two weekends and I'm thinking six, seven eight would be best we're going to do a workshop here on food forest design and food forest expansion. And uh, that gives me time to get a lot of things done in advance so that we can spend more time at this class actually doing design work and teaching you how to do design work and having you do designs for the property rather than it being a total hands-on workshop. It'll probably be a three-day event with one day of planting and, and implementation and two days mostly of instruction and small-scale implementation. For that workshop, I'm going to have a lot of trees and plants on site to expand my Zone 4 food forest. I'm going to have some other plants and trees reserved we're going to pick some spaces. You guys are going to design and implement, uh, at least one or two other spaces of expansion, uh, on, on existing systems. Uh, we're going to cover irrigation too. Some cool ways I've come up with to deal with irrigation. And that's going to be a great workshop too. Again, that's either going to be November 6, 7, and 8. Or 13, 14, 15 is what it's looking like due to some other commitments that I have. Uh, it looks like myself and Charlie from Ethos, and maybe some other people are going to be going up to Mark Shepard's place in October um, toward the like around the weekend of the 25th. So I've got a jam-packed fall coming up, and I just wanted to share all that with you. Uh, I'd love to see some of you guys come out to Ethos and hang out with us. And we're thinking about long-term turning this into a Ethos fall festival. Uh, that it's going to be really, really cool for people to attend. And uh, this will be the first one. And again, there's something really cool going to happen here, and I can't tell you what it is. All right. With the, there will be lots of video on PETV about it, though. All right. With that, uh, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show Again, uh, Douglas Crawl is a fourth-generation windmiller and water well driller. His family's been installing windmills since 1896. His family is currently the largest installer of aeromotor windmills in the country. He's here to talk to us today about windmills, wells, solar pumps, and how to create water self-reliance and self-sufficiency on your homestead. And with that, hey, Doug, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Hey, man, I've got you on to talk about windmills, and uh, that's something we've never really discussed before. Before we get deep into the topic, though, can you just tell people a little bit about your background and how you got into what you're doing now?
0: Uh yes, sir. Um, I'm a fourth-generation uh, windmiller. My family's been in the water wheel business since 1896. When my great-grandpa was uh, moving a a herd of uh, wild Mustangs from the Indian Territory Fort Worth to sell. He ran across a well driller and uh basically stayed on a few days. By the end of it, he traded the, the herd for the, the drilling rig. Moved it up into the Texas Panhandle, and, you know, we've been there ever since. Okay. Um, so...
1: You guys have been doing this, obviously, a long time then, man, um, and uh, you, did a, you did a stint in the military and then kind of came back to the family business, right?
0: Uh, yes, sir. Uh, right after 9-11, I went to the military, you know, Army Infantry, and uh, served six years, at least three, you know, overseas, and I was wounded on the last tour and, you know, basically spent about a year in the hospital until I was medically retired and got out, and that's about when I found your show and started moving to basically better prepare myself.
1: And I, you know, we were talking before and you were saying that you think that there's kind of a hole in a lot of preparedness out there with, you know, water planning and not just stormwater, but being able to move it, get it to go somewhere. I'd really agree. When I know that, you know, I've been now living on a well for a long time and that means that you know if my water's not working it's up to me to fix it and if i'm depending on being able to move that water with a well pump um i can have real issues so one of the first things i did was start trying to think about how to put water into gravity feed situations and have it in reserve but that only lasts so long so did you kind of just start on, you know, on from the beginning about some of the basic benefits of having a windmill on your homestead
0: Ah, uh, there's, there's there's a lot of them um My home right now is, you know, completely ran off of a a windmill. And windmills basically have been around forever. But the water pumping windmill started in uh, the late 1800s. It's one of the things that actually made um, settlers move away from the rivers and creeks and actually start homesteading out on the Great Plains. Because a windmill is basically pumping water out of the ground. You can hook it up to where it uh, pumps into a storage tank, basically. And then you can run your entire house off gravity flow. Um, another key benefit is that when the power grid goes out, when whatever situation, it could be... uh you know, ice storms or tornadoes that the windmill usually will last for 60 to 80 years. And just having that preparedness that you don't have to worry about being on the grid, you don't have to worry about, you know, the electricity failing or power surges. It just really increases your preparedness.
1: Yeah, um, like I said, being on a well, you 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 feel like you got your own water. But if you're if you're pumping them with electricity, and electricity comes from the grid, you you find out real quick when the first time the power goes off, you're trying to run generator lines and things like that to get it going again. How important it is. How do we though as we're looking at this like size of windmill? I've been on some big farms where they have big windmills, and they're moving a lot of water over a long distance. Uh, if we're talking about looking at this for like a homesteader. Most homesteaders are sitting on a few acres to maybe a hundred acres in a pretty big homestead. How do you how do you size a windmill to your property?
0: Um it it, it all depends on uh how deep your water level is. Because you know, uh one of the smallest windmills they make is a six foot and how, how they determine that is is the width of the actual the blades, the wheel. Um a six foot will pump water from about a hundred feet at about two gallons a minute. And you can start moving up in base, basically depth, so, you know, so an eight foot would pump from 200 feet. You know, a uh, 10 foot would pump from 300 feet and a 12 foot from 400. So it all depends on the depth of your water table.
1: And is there a, a limit then though on not just how much rise you can get out of the water, how, how far you can send that water once you get it out of there? <laughs> yeah, it, it,
0: it all depends on uh, just elevation. You know head pressure whenever you uh you're setting it up you can you know we we work on ranches that uh have you know three hundred foot water depth a well that's basically cased three hundred foot in the ground we'll uh put a windmill on it and then they pipeline this this water which the windmill pushes up you know up two or three hundred feet to another um uh, stock tank um So it's basically endless on what you can do with the windmill. And as long as you have wind that's, you know, seven miles an hour up to 30, you know, that windmill is going to be pumping, you know, good, clean water. So
1: it's like the, the windmill, though, is only one part of this system, right? There's a pump that
0: goes with that. So how do we match those two things up? Actually, there's there's no pump. How a windmill works is, is this, you basically have a wheel which turns in the wind, and it basically moves a small gear that's set up to a larger gear. And that larger gear has two arms that lifts um, a rod that goes all the way down into your well, to where your water table is. At the bottom of that, there's a, a cylinder, which all it is is a brass, you know, cylinder, a little bit smaller than your pipe size. And inside that, there's two checks. And one check seats on the bottom of the case or the, the cylinder. The other check is going up and down when the windmill turns. And just that action pushes water into the cylinder and then lifts it up. So you're basically... Um, basically running a double check action that pulls water out of the ground with just the the wind
1: till so there's no independent pump, the whole thing is a single system
0: absolutely it's very it's one of the most efficient ways to get water out of the ground um, There are you know solar pumps that can be hooked up to the bottom so that when the windmill is pumping, it's pumping extra water because the solar pump's pumping it also. But once that windmill wind quits turning, the solar pump will basically take over. Okay.
1: So you keep talking about wells, and that's obviously one source of water. Do you guys ever set them up where, let's say, a guy doesn't have a well, but he's got a great big stock tank set up, but it's in lower the land, and he wants to move that water higher up in the land so he can use gravity on it. And basically you're just pumping it out of a stock tank.
0: Yes, sir. Um, and those windmills are a lot, lot cheaper. Um, and it's basically set up like an aerator. So it's basically, uh, you have your windmill and you have your, your basically your cylinder that goes into your water tank. And while it's pumping it, it's basically pressurizing up and sending it up, up your pipeline.
1: you. Gotcha. Cause that seems like a, a really good application a lot. I see a lot of ranches and farms and homesteads that person buys and they move onto that piece of land and a lot of things are already done and maybe not exactly where they would have located it. And, uh, but they've got this, this resource of water and it may not be water you want to take a bath in, um, if it's a stock tank, uh, but, that water could be used for irrigation and for livestock on on different parts of the property, and in that situation, more like a retrofit, it may be a hell of a lot less expensive. Not just for the windmill, but you're also not paying the expense of putting a new well in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, one of the things we uh, we do also is is when we put up these windmills, you know, and one of the best ways to do it is is to have a have a stock tank, which is on a tower. It pumps into the stock tank, everything gravity flows, but the problem you run into is moving that water uphill. In um, a basic windmill, you know, you're using uh, basically, if you've ever seen a pump jack, it has a rod that goes, it's just like oil wells. It goes down and it has packing in it, which is leather and grease. And right there, keeps the water from flowing out the top, but it'll send it down your pipeline. Okay. Um,
1: so, what kind of production are we able to do with a windmill? I mean, I guess it depends on the size of the windmill on some levels, but, you know, in a, in a typical situation, how much water can a, a windmill really move on a
0: you know given day? Yes, sir, and that all depends on the size of the cylinder on the bottom and the size of the windmill. So if you have a six-foot windmill you know, that has six-foot diameter blades, basically, then uh, you, that windmill is going to pump a six-inch stroke. It's going to go up and down just six inches. Okay. So the larger the windmill you go, the larger the stroke, which increases your water flow. And like I say, a six-foot windmill pumps about two gallons a minute. As long as the wind's blowing seven miles an hour. But it increases with with the wind basically. When if you go up to a twelve foot and you increase the size of your cylinder on the bottom, it can pump up to six to eight gallons a minute.
1: Which is a significant amount of water. I think in the world of electric pumps, we think water on demand, where a windmill is more designed to act like a battery charger, filling up a battery. So we're we're taking that water somewhere into some sort of a holding tank and to use gravity to our advantage in the future. We're not necessarily doing it so you can hook up a hose to it and open the other end up and start spraying water out. Okay. Um, and, and that, that kind of, that kind of numbers right or Even two gallons, you said two gallons a minute for the smallest one? Yes, sir. So that's about 120 gallons an hour. Yes, sir. Uh, if that thing's running all day long, because you don't have to do anything, that's the whole point. It just sits out there and does its deal. Um That that starts to add up really, really fast to moving an awful lot of water. So is there a mechanism? you know, how do you, is it like a clutch or something that if I'm filling up a, a holding tank, there's some kind of float valve or something that says to the window, okay, dude, I've got enough water, stop.
0: Stop giving me more water. Uh, that's That's one of the... The problems with the windmill you you can go out and turn it off there's no automated system that'll do it um, yeah. that's why most people you know like on my homestead, the windmill pumps into a big storage tank, which is you know twelve feet off the ground, and that storage tank once that windmill fills it up, overflows into a pond or into a swell okay. um, and a lot of the people who want you know water on demand, they'll actually end up hooking up, you know, a pressure pump, you know, that draws from the storage tank.
1: So you you've thrown out numbers like seven miles an hour. Um, is that kind of the minimum? And like, are there places in the country where there's just not enough wind to make it viable? And how, how do you make that determination whether it's going to work for you or not?
0: Uh you can look on a. Look online at your average wind data. Um, you can find some figures there. But, but most places, you're gonna have enough wind, unless you have tons of tree cover. Because you, you wanna install this windmill, you know, at least five feet above anything surrounding, you know, which could cut off your, your wind flow. Um, the average tower, is anywhere from uh, 27 to up to 50 feet. So choosing your tower, you know, it should be chose by looking around your surrounding area and basically measuring the trees around you.
1: That's got to be a significant installation uh, operation, right? I mean, you know, we, we see these little windmill lawn ornaments and stuff like that, and we might get scale out of our head a little bit. I mean, even when you say a six-foot windmill, well, that's a six-foot circle,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So that's a pretty big machine, really, when you think about it. That's like putting a rod through my stomach and putting me up on a machine. <laughs> you didn't, you got to get me 27 feet in the air spinning around up there. I mean, so is there probably as much... Let's say cost and labor in the, the, the construction and installation of a tower as the, as
0: the, the machine itself? Yes, sir. You know, most of the installation is going to be in the tower. Um, you can do it yourself. You know, it just takes a lot of time, you know, and you got to have a decent ability hands-on work because one of the problems with the windmill and the reason why you don't see it everywhere now is, is because there isn't windmillers. Who actually install them everywhere? So a lot of these places that are outside Texas, outside Oklahoma, or basically the great, great Plains, you're going to be stuck with doing it yourself or um, hiring somebody. And that's one of the things we we offer is is, is being able to consult with your local well person, explain to him, and work with him to get your tower up. Um, you will have to get like a for six and eight foots. You can actually rent a a bucket truck. With that bucket truck, once you installed your tower, you can use the bucket truck to install the actual motor that goes on top. The tower setup is pretty difficult, but you can do it. And I'll, I'll be releasing some videos on my website within the next month, showing step by step how to how to install these.
1: But I mean, it's something's got to be done right. I mean, you're probably running some down guys or something like that. I mean, it's it's a significant structure. And especially saying, you know, a six foot windmill is one thing. You mentioned things up like a twelve foot windmill. Yes, well, that's, that's, that's probably a pretty sizable tower necessary to do that. You're probably bringing in some specialized equipment to get that done.
0: Yes, sir. Um, your local well person should have a, a well rig that can do most of these installations. But if you're doing it yourself, if you get up above ten foot, then you're going to more likely have to, uh, get a small crane. Um you can rent them, you know, I think it's pretty expensive though. It's you know $150 an hour. But uh you you wouldn't need the actual uh the crane for this tower installation. You can do that piece by piece. Everything comes you know you know pre it's it's everything's bolted together. You cement your anchor post in the ground and then you start building up from there. And uh the installation kit that all of these come with are pretty detailed and have you know color coded you know and you just basically start slowly working that window up so that the only reason you'll need the the crane would be basically to stab the
1: what's the what's the cost of all this i mean let's say I know it's obviously going to be it depends how far away a person is from you for you know, materials getting them there and, and stuff like that. But just a basic average of, you know, six or eight foot one mil installed tower construction and kind of broken down. What's the person looking at and on cost there?
0: Um, yes, sir. We have a, you know, the complete six foot package which comes for uh just over five thousand dollars. And eight foot is just under six thousand. And that's that comes with a tower, basically everything you need you know to install it um, with your local serviceman installing it, they usually charge about the hour um, and we're able to install these within about eight hours
1: okay, so the price you were given there that's not a turnkey price that's a kit
0: price yeah that's that's a kit you know for if 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 you buy it and do it yourself or you get a local serviceman to do it. That's one problem with state regulations is is me being a, a master, you know, well driller and pump installer, I only can work out of the state of Texas because you have to go through all licensing and, you know, it doesn't transfer into different states.
1: More help from the government.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Definitely, more help from the government so you let me just recap those prices then so, like a six foot windmill we 're looking at about five thousand plus installation, and that's the windmill and the tower that's not the the, the well we're still looking at drilling the well, and the well's going to have a lot cost of a well from what i 've seen has a lot to do with a lot of things what 's yeah. the soil like? how deep's it got to go um, How many well drillers are currently drilling wells for the gas and oil people and yeah. and and don't want to take the time to see you because like the price of a well here has honestly doubled in the last five years because all the well drillers are out with all the work they can handle for the gas, uh, Chesapeake gas.
0: Absolutely. So. Yeah. That's one of the biggest problems you run into nowadays, but it, I've seen prices that are, you know, $17 a foot. And then you get up into Colorado. Then it's, it's anywhere from 35 to 40 dollars a foot. The best way would be basically contact your local driller and ask his, you know, price. And what he believed would be the max, you know, the max depth of your, of your well
1: most of these guys have been doing this a while. But if you tell them where you're at and they're familiar with the area at all, they, they know somewhere thereabouts how deep they're going to have to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They,
1: they're not going to give you over the phone without any kind of site look or some, a hard firm price, but they're going to get you in the ballpark.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. And, uh, you can go on a line to, uh, it's, uh, I think it's wellbetter.com and they have quite a few. Ranges and ballparks of where, you know, your local area water depth is. Have you
1: ever in your experience with drilling a well, you know, been called out to somebody and figured, yeah, I can put a well in there. And
0: then when you really look at it, it's just not doable. Um, no, sir. You know, here we've, we've mostly figured it out. Um, the problem we run into in my area up in Texas Panhandle is, is we're, we have the Oklahoma aquifer, which, you know, basically goes, you know, way up into Wyoming. And this aquifer isn't everywhere. There's basically underground streams that, that flow through gravel. So every place you look at isn't going to have water. You know, we pers- personally witch. We've been witching, I guess, for the last 100 years. But your local well man should have pretty good data on your local area are you guys
1: because you are out on that aquifer are you seeing anybody that's had wells for a long time worked for a long time and that well's going dry because of depletion of that aquifer
0: absolutely absolutely we're running into that every day that's one of the reasons we're so busy is because you know with all the irrigation and you know and they're pumping you know thousand gallons a minute into these circles which for their crops that it's you know draining the aquifer about three feet each year, and in some places, it's even worse than that. So, in the future, it's going to be a very big commodity of where your land is placed, uh, how deep your aquifer is, and how much actually water table you have underneath it. I mean, do you think that's the reason
1: people need to think a lot more about building up surface water reserves and things like that? Using what rainfall? I mean, I know where you're working, you're probably getting what, 12 inches a year, average rainfall, 10, something like that. You're on the desert edge there. Um, so it's not a lot, but, I mean, it does add up. There's huge catchments out there. I guess there's government help there, too, though. Like, if you use service water for commercial crops in Texas, you got to have a permit
0: from the man and, and what have you. Um, yes, sir. Uh, and, you know, one of the key things we have here is what we have, ply Lakes. And it's, you know, basically places where run, runoff runs for miles and collecting this this little slight depression, and that those are one of the key things that uh recharge the aquifer, but one of the problems you run into you know only one tenth of an inch actually makes it down to the aquifer. the rest is basically runoff or it you know uh evaporation evaporation, yes sir.
1: Especially out there. I mean, you're talking some intense heat. I mean, because some of the places I've seen out that way that they're farming, you look at a Google satellite image and you see all those green circles, mm-hmm. and all you see around it is brown desert.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that government isn't helping in a situation. They're subsidizing over half for these circles to go in. And you're talking... A hundred thousand dollars to put one of these circles in, and the government's taking it out of our pockets, basically de- de- depleting our aquifer. Well, you also mentioned solar
1: pumps. So, is there like a point where you tell a guy like you're really going to want to include a solar pump with this? How, how do we make the determination whether we add that to a windmill system? Are there situations where we can just use a solar pump? What's you know what are the
0: costs there? Yeah, the, you know the average solar pump. Put in is about seven thousand dollars. Just the pump alone for for a good quality like Grundfos pump is twenty five hundred dollars. But you know the solar panels, you know, is, adds up. So you basically you need more solar panels for the depth you're going. So you know the average on about a two hundred foot depth is about three hundred watts, and uh, it still doesn't compete with the windmill that well because windmill has a a life of 60 to 100 years you know where the solar pumps you you're lucky to get uh 10 years out of a good quality pump and some of the lower brand pumps like sun pump and they have one that's named robertson they only last six months to a year yeah. so it solar pumps are good you know there's less maintenance But there just isn't the longevity of a windmill.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I've always seen solar pumps seem to be a good option, small, low-flow stuff for moving water 10, 12, 15 feet. I want these little always-on ones. They either pump when they're on or they don't, like a windmill works. No batteries built into them. And it's little trickles of water, but... It adds up over time, and those seem to have a lot of application in small homesteads and things like that, where you got a place, there is some water there, you really need it up higher so you can move it somewhere else, and you just don't really have another option, and your budget's limited, and and that's where I seems like these smaller solar pumps seem to work okay.
0: Yeah, they they work decent for that, you know. And uh, these new solar pumps, you know, these submersibles, they actually they're getting a lot better um, but you know they'll pump up to 800 foot on some of them and you know we've installed we, we've we been installing probably 100 solar pumps a year and we've installed them on homes which basically they pump into this big storage tank and then uh, and a pressure to pump to pump's all of us are dedicated okay. to find a
1: worldwide high quality solar pump I'm just gonna, uh, do you know about where you were when that happened?
0: Uh, not really. I'm sorry, I
1: knocked you off there. <laughs> I just, I'm just, just start from where I was. You, you were saying, uh, some of the new submersibles, uh, are getting better. Kind of pick up from there. But just wait about five seconds. No, I'll find it. There's a giant blurp in there. I went and pulled that side up when you mentioned it and, so, just if you can just go from there, just say some of the new pumps are getting better
0: and. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, some of the new pumps are getting a lot better. You know, they'll pump up to 800 feet deep. Um, it's just you're going to have more price in the actual solar panels, which with like the Grundfos solar pumps, you can buy the solar pump and then it purchase your own solar panels because they run off of any voltage, basically. Um, some of the cheaper ones, you, you gotta stick with their, their, their volches, their systems. But, uh, the good quality ones, they're, they're getting a lot better. They're getting a lot better with longevity, you know, and even pumping a little bit of sand, where the cheaper pumps, you know, they'll just tear up with any, any debris in your well.
1: Kind of the reason I'm asking this is we're, you know, we're, we're kind of working on this permaculture farm up in West Virginia right now. And we're going to be putting in a couple really uh pretty high up, one contour dam and one ridge point dam. But there's probably another 200 foot of rise up to this uh little plateau. Mm-hmm. And that area up there is an area that we will graze hogs. And, of course, you can't not give them water because they'll die. Um It's probably, though, a place where we'll... The the hogs will be there during grazing maybe 10% of the entire time. The rest of the time they'll be over in another set of paddocks, and we've got a a high dam over there. We can push water on 80% of the property from that one dam, but we we can't get it to this one spot. And we're kind of looking at, well, what would be the easiest way, cost-effective way but long-term lasting way to get water a couple hundred foot up and, you know, we're talking about filling up something like a 1500 gallon poly tank or something like that because it's just not that much water that we would need. So we look at that, and windmill would be cool because it's a permaculture farm and it's a windmill. And all. But, <laughs> but you know, if you can put a little solar pump in there and handle that, because that is an on-off, you can you can set that and just shut off when you don't want it running. And, and honestly, it probably wouldn't need
0: to run six months out of the year. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that would be the best best option. It would be a... You know, a decent solar pump, you know, with your panels set up on the, on the ground. The biggest problem you're going to run into is you're going to have to run a line with your, your pipe up to the tank. Yeah. Which has a, um, a float switch on it. Yeah. Um, a windmill for that situation, I think would be a little bit overkill. So. Yeah,
1: it sounds uh, like it.
0: Absolutely. But, uh, you know, like the Grunfoss SQF. Flex, you know, I have one on my website. You know, that would pump that two hundred feet rise with no problem. All you'd probably need would be two hundred watts. Okay.
1: So. And I mean, a size in a solar system like that, like size in solar for anything else. That you, you, look at your power requirements, your solar exposure, your panels are sized to what you have, um, that type of thing. Absolutely. So you've you mentioned the longevity of these things, but I found there's there's two types of people in the world. There's one person tell you a certain model of car is the biggest piece of crap you could ever drive and you need to get never buy one of those because uh, 'cause they're junk. Another guy have the same car and say it's the best car he's ever owned. <laughs> and the difference is the guy that says it's the best car he's ever owned did this thing called maintenance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the guy the guy that it, had like seventeen thousand miles on the car before he got his first oil change has a negative opinion of the car. So with these machines lasting like seven years, I'm sure we don't just sit out in the middle of fuel and go, Hey, that's nice, look at it out there pumping and we don't ever look at it again except when we want to see it in a postcard image. There's there's certain things we gotta do to keep that thing running. So what are the some of the things that I gotta do to keep my windmill, you know, living longer than me?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um one of the key things is is checking oil. And it's it's pretty simple. You basically turn off your windmill, go up, you wanna tie off your wheel so it's not spinning while you're up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it could be a bad situation. But you go up, you check oil about once a year. Then you want to change the oil about every three years. Um other than that, the windmill pretty much, you know, takes care of itself. In high winds it'll shut off, you know, um in low winds it opens up it pumps beautifully. But uh the problem you run into is the maintenance in the ground but you have this rod that goes all the way down to your checks and on them checks is uh... is either leathers or uh... rubber and those need to be changed out anywhere from three years up to ten years okay and uh... within about twenty years bad. i'm thinking of a big rod going all the way down there is
1: it like drill stem it comes apart to get how do you how do you get that plunger that maybe is 250
0: feet in the ground up um one of the easiest ways is, is uh you're going to have to connect a pulley on top of your windmill, and you're going to run that cable through the pulley and then down to a vehicle. so you're basically hooking up to this this rod, which is either um, fiberglass or wood, and you're going to be pulling it up in sections, and the sections come in either 16 foot or 20 foot pieces, okay. So you basically pull how do it up. they connect together? Do they like I was saying? Do they like spin together
1: like drill stem does? Or? Yeah, it's it's the same. It, you all know. Right,
0: all right, okay,
1: because I was just like I'm thinking of a 200 foot rod. It has to be <laughs> inspected
0: somehow. Yeah, yeah, it's the uh, by far the easiest way is is uh, it, it all of them come in you know 15 to 20 foot sections. So you basically pull it out, you know, take your checks apart, replace them, and you're basically lowering it back in.
1: What about, like, how does quality of the water itself affect the requirements for maintenance? I've got this water here in my well. It's limestone, which I'm sure you know a lot about. Um, it's hard. Uh, I threw uh, a bucket of it at a guy the other day and knocked him out. No, it's not that hard, but it's, I'll put it this way. We tested it after it went through the water softener and it was 250 parts per million, uh, calcium. Okay. So that's, that's pretty hard after the water softener. And certain things around here, like I just have put in my budget that once every two years, I just shut the water off and go pull all the hose bibs off, throw them the hell away, and replace them. Absolutely. Um, in the bigger ones that are like a one inch that have the the check valves, they'll last probably three years. But the little conventional ones are just shot. Uh, sprinklers are, you know, on a death sentence the day they show up. Yes. Trip uh, irrigation. Ran it in one bed to test it. Two days later, ripped it out, threw it away, never even considered it again. So some water is really detrimental to equipment. You were mentioned how like the uh, solar pumps, a little bit of sand in some of the cheaper ones, you just tear them up. So how does the quality of the water affect
0: the longevity of the windmill equipment and the pumps and stuff like that? Actually, not much. You know, you know, <laughs> the, the windmill is pretty bulletproof. Um, the only thing it will do is if, uh, it could corrode your pipe and basically put a hole in your pipe. Um, the checks, the rods, it, 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 it'll, it'll just push right through it. Um, okay, I've I've actually seen uh, a windmill pump sand, which you know the, the casing caved in. It pumped sand from the very bottom of this well all the way top and all the way down the lead pipe. Packed it so tight in there. <laughs> <laughs> that it took us three hours with the dang to pressure washer to get it out. Yeah, you know. So windmills are, I mean, they're just durable. They was, you know, the ones we put up is air motor, and they they've been putting these exact same windmills out since the very start of the 1900s, and they're just basically bulletproof. Sand'll
1: get you in ways you don't think about. I I used to do underground construction. We did directional boring, so instead of drilling down, we drilled out. And uh, we had this little 7-Eleven Vermeer drill that had 400 foot of stem on it. And uh we were in sand, so we were just flying, no problem through. <laughs> and uh, we're just putting it out there, putting it out there, putting it out there. And we're running uh, bentonite so that it doesn't collapse on us because we yes. had already learned that the hard way. And uh so we get 400 foot out from the machine. The guy's like, I can keep going. So we robbed about 200 foot of stem off another machine, put it out there about 600 foot all of a sudden the little computer in the head of the drill, which costs about (laughs) $5,000, starts telling us, you're killing me with heat. And it was the friction from the spinning on the sand and that far out. Mm -hmm. So we just stopped drilling and started pumping the water as fast as we could through it, the drilling fluid through it. And it got hotter and hotter and hotter, cooked off and died. We had to dig it up to find where it was and replace this thing. And what we had figured out happened is with 600 foot of stem, Rolling on that sand, the whole stem heated up. So it's just like when you turn a water hose on in the sun, you gotta wait, you know, five minutes before all the water comes out so and starts scalding you. Yeah. So as we were pushing the water through, it was coming out of the tank hole but coming out of the other end, we we're trying to cool this, this they call it a sawn off hot. And when you start working with a lot of stuff, you tend to think sand is easy. And then sand has just a unique way of kicking your ass. Probably true for well drillers, too.
0: Oh, absolutely. We run into <laughs> the same problem. But, uh, especially with solar pumps, you know, because most of the cheaper solar pumps, they have, uh, inside of it has plastic turbines. And that that sand will just destroy them. Any amount of sand. You know, it's just that abrasive nature of sand. It has a unique, a very unique way of destroying plastics. So, uh. But the better quality solar pumps, they actually have stainless steel turbines, which handle the sand decently, but it's still going to put incredible wear on it. So, um,. Kind of, what is this, the size of a place
1: where you would say a windmill makes sense and uh, the, the size of a place where you'd say maybe it doesn't? Or does it make sense for
0: anybody as long as they've got a well or a water source? Yeah, as long as they've got a well or water source and they're not completely surrounded by 60 foot, you know, pines, then it's going to work for you. You know, it's going to pump, it's going to give you free water without no electricity. Um, as long as you've got a storage tank, you know, it's it's a pretty good system.
1: What's kind of your minimum um, altitude gain you need for that storage tank to where the water's coming out to really get usable pressure to do most of the things people want to do uh, without adding, you know, a pressure pump? So I I here would, it, at minimum, have to put in some kind of a water tower my elevation change is all of eight feet from one corner of yeah. the three acres to the other. There's not a lot of head pressure there.
0: Right.
1: Um, but there are places like we had our place in West Virginia where I was talking about putting that poly tank. I promise you, if you ran a pipe to the bottom of that mountain, you could probably knock somebody off the truck <laughs> while they're driving by with the pressure you'd have there. But where is kind of that point where you've got – I mean, there's all kinds of math formulas that go into it. But in the end – there's a certain, probably a certain amount of altitude. If you've got at least that much change, you're going to have significant pressure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say a minimum of twelve feet. Whenever, okay. whenever we install, you know, install these on remote cabins, and even we install these windmills with these storage tanks, you know, on houses, you know, pretty often. And you want to get it at least twelve feet. And with twelve feet at the bottom of that tank. And a, at least a six foot tank above it. You're getting enough pressure. It'll actually push through your plumbing in your house. It'll actually, it, it won't be pressurized, but it, it'll at least come out of the shower. It'll, it'll least- fall out of the shower head yeah. if it's high. <laughs> <Absolutely. laughs>
1: so, um, I, I'm only asking this because I know somebody's going to ask this because I don't, I think the answer is no. Um, but is there such a thing as a windmill that moves water? That also generates electricity, uh, and not from some kind of weird hydro thing that it does with the water falling back down, but like from the windmill itself.
0: Um, there isn't at the moment. I've actually been trying for the last two years to figure this one out. I, I've I've made you know wind generators out of windmills, but making it all work at the same time is pretty tough. It's pretty tough
1: because you got two totally different needs of moving parts there. I really didn't understand exactly how a windmill worked as far as moving water, but now I do. It's just a big, long, up-and-down rod, yes, and it's pumping just like an old-school well pump that you did by hand. We used to have one when I lived in Pennsylvania. It's just a big, giant one of those, and the wind does the work, so I don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to make a clutch-driven mechanism that uh, transfers the uh, the energy in a totally different way um it doesn't seem real practical but i guess it does seem possible uh it may be that the way to do it eventually is to build a really cool tower that can support both a windmill and a a a water windmill type of thing you know Uh, so they're two different machines but
0: they can share the same infrastructure somehow yeah absolutely and i have seen those um we've had uh a You know, out on some of these big remote ranches, this is one windmill we put up. The windmill's been up forever, but we ended up installing, you know, a wind turbine, which which controls the actual uh, solar pump that's hooked to it also. And all all you'd have to do is basically weld brackets, you know, that pushes this outside of your, uh, which basically pushes it off your tower. And it works fairly well.
1: It would seem like it would make sense. There's obviously wind there. You wouldn't be putting a windmill there. Now I got a question for you. You just made me think If I was listening to this thing on the news recently and they were talking about these new designed, you know, wind machines for electricity generation and trying to scale them down. And what they said is that this new design might actually work because it'll last. Because a lot of the wind, like you know, you can buy these little four hundred watt windmills or whatever. They don't have a very long life expectancy. Yes, Is there a reason they die in a year or two, and these these you know these old school windmills that pump water last seventy eighty years?
0: It, it's more in the design and the simplicity of you know the actual air motor windmill. It, everything's cast iron. Everything's you know fitted perfectly, and it's sitting in an oil bath so basically Mm. you know there's very little wear you know and then whenever you switch over to wind turbines you know most of your uh, your part failure is going to be in your actual generator it's going to be you know from heating up or basically corrosion Um, we have thousands of these wind turbines coming up here you know around Amarillo and they don't got a very good life on them. Um, I, I think it's more just the scale in the in the quality of the actual uh, mechanism.
1: In the well, they ain't made in the China, which is where probably most of them little electric windmills are made. That right repaired. you know. Yeah, absolutely. American iron versus Chinese plastic. Yes, yeah, sir. Gotta do that one. I got another kind of, uh, not oddball, but just off course question for you a little bit. I'm sitting on your website right now. I'm looking at a picture of, I guess, who's your grandfather or great grandfather in 1902. Um, and there's a dude looks like he's roughnecking basically up in the middle of this tower and, uh, they got horses and, and you're probably drilling a well here. Um, back in that time, how did they drill a well? I mean, they didn't have the equipment that we do today, and you had to this, got to get pretty much the same hole in the ground. So what what did they do back then differently from what you do today?
0: Yeah, back then everything was run off horsepower basically. So you had a a belt, you know, big long belt that runs to your drilling rig and then it runs out, and it basically has one of them uh uh them horse leader twirly things that uh. Yep. You know, people, you know, run the horses around. I had one of those. And that system right there, just them horses running around, powered these, these wow. drilling rigs. And it used to take months just to drill I'm feet to Yeah, a
1: horse is only going to go so long before it's going to be like, you know
0: what, I'm done today. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's just back then, I mean, there were some hard men. You know, they they dealt with some of the harshest conditions, and they just keep going. Um Later on, you know, my great-grandpa he ended up uh in the 30s getting a steam engine and that steam engine is what ran the belt and that was a, that was a big big plus for the water well industry.
1: god because you just think of the the heat on these planes you know i was out we've had a really mild summer this year but i was out on on my property yesterday about five o'clock and i think it was about 102 degrees and yeah, that's mild for August. That really is. We we've had our global cooling this year. And uh I remember I remember doing construction with 113 degrees out at seven o'clock and it was still getting hotter. And uh to to be you know, spending months of, of walking a horse in a circle to get one well drilled, it had to just take a different a different cut of, of mindset than what we have today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, or even myself who drills his wells every day, you know, I'm a, a weenie compared to the, the old men. I mean, they they were just tough, you know. You gotta think of that old um homesteader mentality that they could just forge through anything.
1: Yeah, I guess it was either do it or die, really. I mean that was the the thing so, how long does it take you now to put in an average? I know again, I know it depends. Uh, how long is it going to take you to get this five optic to cable one, Jack? This one a day, and next one five weeks. But I mean, on average, how long does it take you to put in a
0: typical well? Ah, uh, drilling a well now it usually take two or three days. Okay. Um, you know, and that's with the rotary rig. That's the same as a drilling rig, which is basically turning a bit down the ground. We still drill the old fashioned way with a. Uh, what they call a cable tool rig, when you basically got a big 1,000-pound bit, you're you're lifting up and dropping. And what that does is allow you to work your water table where you're getting 100% of that actual, you know, of the water table, where a rotary rig will actually pump mud into the water table and kind of shut it off a little bit. Mm. So it on a cable tool rig, it'll take around seven days. So...
1: Okay, what's the average time to do once you' got the, the well in average time if you're you know somebody's buying a full tilt system you can put up the tower and the windmill
0: next Well, we can usually do it in a day, but it's okay. usually you know a good twelve hour day um with a do it yourself for doing it 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 would probably take at least three days it'd probably take me three weeks. <laughs>
1: Three weeks and a lot of evenings quitting a little bit early and drinking a beer, so I don't lose my temper yes, uh, but uh do you find most of your customers coming to you or like, "I want you to build me a windmill and drill me a well, or I've got a
0: well, and I want you to install a windmill um it's usually n- new it's people uh deepening their wells because uh their water table is you know dropping, but okay. you know most of the time it's it's, it's new. Or replacing existing ones. So we still got tons of the old wooden windmills up on the Panhandle that you know they've been up for over a hundred years, and then the wood just finally rotten through. That you know they'll fall down, and we'll go put up a new one. Gotcha. Yeah, because a farmer, if it's pumping, it's pumping. Huh? It's gonna
1: break one day. Yep. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Is it gonna break this year? Don't know. Yeah.
0: That <laughs> when, you, yeah.
1: when it breaks. <laughs> right when it breaks and I can't fix it with bail and water wire anymore, that's the standard farmer answer. So I was gonna the next thing. What's driving most of your customers' decisions? I mean, if I put a windmill on one of my properties and you ask me, you know what I'm gonna say? Sustainability and, and independence. But you're probably working with a lot of ag folks. So is there? Are they doing a cost analysis versus electricity based on their location, or is it just more reliable? I mean, what is driving your average customer's
0: decision to go with wind? My my average customer is based on, you know, cattle. So the the average uh, customer is based on cattle. You know, it costs way too much money to string, you know, electrical poles a mile yeah. to out in these remote fields. Um, they either going with solar or windmill, and the windmill usually will pay itself back versus if you did have on-grid electricity within seven years because uh, of the, the basic – you know, cost of running a submersible.
1: Sure. And I mean, when we look at that, then that means from seven years on, you're checking and changing oil once in a while and changing your, uh I can't remember what you call them with the little things on the, yeah. on the pump itself. And that, and at that point, that machine is almost printing money for you because one way or another, you got to give cows water or they will die.
0: Absolutely. I mean,
1: that's, so if you're going to make your money off cattle, you got to have water. So it's a financial driven decision, which is interesting because We hear so much about how sustainable things like wind, you know, take a long time to pay back. But seven years in the world of ranching is actually pretty quick. It's quicker than most fencing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I remember Joel um, Sallett must have said a hundred times at Permaculture Voices, put in temporary cheap fencing. Do not put in a permanent fence until you've left a temporary fence in place for three years. Because wherever you think you want that fence in three years, you probably won't want it there anymore. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, the timelines in in ranching, seven years to pay back. Um, And then that machine is going to work for me, probably more for my kids. I'll be dead. It it seems to make a lot of sense. And it seems like it's a more efficient use for wind power than generating electricity. Uh, It seems a very efficient
0: way to move water. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the conservation people say it is the the most, because you're not taking mechanical energy and converting it into electrical. You're actually using straight mechanical power.
1: Direct drive power type
0: situation. Yes, sir. So a
1: person wants to learn more about your company, what you guys do, and uh, working with you, where can they find out more about
0: you? Um, We've started a website. It's uh, homesteadwaterpro.com. Um, and we'll be putting on articles, you know, several times weekly on how-tos and, you know, life as a windmiller. And uh, basically, we're going to go from hand pumps, solar pumps, uh, rain, uh, rain harvesting, and just trying to help the preparedness in our community, you know, become more water self-sufficient.
1: Well, I need to because there's nothing more important. I've, I've said several times you don't give water to a pig or a cow, it dies, but you and I know if you don't give water to a human, they
0: die too. Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. Especially when a cow drinks 15 gallons a day.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, water keeps your, your, your crops alive. It keeps you alive, it keeps your animals alive. And, you know, all you got to do is deal with the loss of your water pressure for whatever reason or, in the wintertime, you have pipes that so you usually rely on to get water to a place, freeze up. And, and, and real quick, you realize how much we take for granted the ability of water just to show up wherever we turn a valve. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's on a well with, you know, grid electrical power and set a power outage. And it ain't to where you feel like I need to go get the generator on or anything yet. You're just going to deal with it because it's probably going to be back up in an hour or so. And five minutes later, you walk over to the sink and turn the faucet. And you look at it and go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, what I did here, and this is a real simple preparedness thing on water, I have in every bathroom a 25-gallon simple pressure tank. Okay. It runs by an air bladder, so the water pumps into that, and that tank provides additional pressure. There's no... It's not electrical. There's no moving part to it other than just this air bladder that, that provides pressure on the water. Uh, so I've got two small bathrooms with 25-gallon ones. I've got one big. The main bathroom's got a 50-gallon one. I've got a 150-gallon one of those out in the garage where the water softener system and the well comes in and all. So that means for us, if our water goes off in our house, we've got a couple hundred gallons of water. Absolutely. That pressure goes through everywhere, it, it back, pressure, forward, whatever. It'll come out of any faucet. Yes, sir. And uh, that was cheap to do. And, man, that was – that gives you time to go – you know, while you still have water flowing, to go out and, you know, in, you know turn the generator on or whatever. Exactly. Uh, it also screwed us this year. <laughs> Did it. So we have a pipe that comes out of the garage into the house, and there's like a one-inch – it won't do it again because I know it's there now. There's like a one-inch piece where it's exposed. and it went down to 14 degrees, and that pipe froze. Okay. So the pipe was frozen – and we ended up using all the water in the house in the reserve with with no rationing <laughs> because the water just kept coming out of the faucet so we didn't know it was frozen until it yeah. stopped staff when all pressure tanks were empty absolutely uh, so we got to fix that pipe but uh yes, sir. It, it reinforces the importance of water i know that's something you're working for to, to to get people to understand more and that this is a solution that's been around a long time um I, I, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on, being with us today, and uh, we'll make sure we get people over to your website again. It's HomesteadWaterPro.com, and uh, I can say, it's Doug, man. Thanks for the work you're doing out there. Thanks for your service to our country, and uh, clearly, it, it, you had a, a point where you had to uh, to deal with some pretty serious stuff. If you're, you know, laid up for a year. So I appreciate your service to our country. I appreciate your ongoing service to the preparedness community, and I appreciate you taking time to be with us today. And, you know, nobody out there would know if I did and say it, but I appreciate you dealing with me having to reschedule you uh, a couple of days too, man. Heck, yeah.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it, Jack. Uh, and whenever you want a hand pump, just give me a call. All
1: right. All right, man. I appreciate that, Doug. And with that, this has been uh, Jack Spearco today along with Douglas, Douglas Crowell. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. Or even Fidel. Revolution
0: Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do.